welcome to the Forbes India cover story podcast series in association with the indicas.com. My name is Abhishek and this time joining me to talk about a cover story which also happens to be the Independence Day special issue is Mr. Sandeep Vaslekar who is the president of the Strategic Foresight Group, a think tank which uh, advises many, many governments on policy matters around the world. And he's an expert in matters relating to terrorism. We've heard him before uh, about a year back. Hi, Sandeep. Good to have you back. Yeah, good to hear you again. Thank you. And just about a year back, you had a cover story in Forbes and we spoke about it. It was right after the terror attacks and you gave some insights as to how it all works around the world. And of course, we ended on a hopeful note. So what's it going to be this time, Sandeep? Well, since this is a Independence Day special, I thought uh, this is an occasion for us to reflect on where we are, where are we going and where we ought to be going. So one of the key things that I have touched upon in this cover essay is the debate that's taking place in the country about our aspiration to be a great power. And I question, do we really need to be great power and can we be great power? Or instead, should we try to be a great nation? What is the difference between a great power and a great nation? And what should be really our aspirations as a nation? It's really an essay to, to reflect on our achievements, on our limitations as a nation, and to make us think about where we are to be going. So what is the difference between a great nation and a good nation? Well, India has made some achievements in the course of the last 65 years, and we must uh, recognize them. We have had a thriving democracy with all its limitations and uh, corruption and inefficiency, but still it's a thriving democracy. We have developed our economy to an extent that India has now earned a seat at the G20 table. Our science and technological developments are also quite impressive, particularly in the area of space science and, in, uh, and to some extent in uh, nuclear energy. So we have been doing progress, no question about it. But is this enough? Is this enough as an average Indian? Because let's look at the other side. There are 630,000 villages in India. Out of them, 500,000 villages do not have schools above seven standard. We have almost half of our children malnourished from a health perspective. We have tremendous amount of deficit even in our higher education. Ours is primarily an agrarian country and there are only 20 agricultural universities. Now that is as far as education is concerned. Then you look at the overall human development quotient of the country. The United Nations Human Development Index measures human development in 160 countries. And we have never been amongst the top 120. So we have been really amongst the bottom 50 nations. So where are we going wrong, Sandeep? Is it that every nation has a corpus of funds? Let's say that we have a bounty of money which is currently allocated in different schemes or there is a strategy where we invest X amount in defense and Y in human development. So do you think the pie is wrong? You are at a position where you get to see so many things right from the top at the policy level. Where are we lacking then? There are a number of areas in our process of governance which we really need to re-examine. First of all, the relationship between the rulers and the ruled. India is one of the few countries in the world, and I'm not including Africa or Latin American dictatorships, but if you consider Western Europe, North America, and Asia, then India is one of the few countries where power is really monopolized by those in the structure of governance and those who are in the representative institutions. And there's a big power gap between the rulers and the ruled. Take a small example. Almost all developed uh, countries in the world, including most European countries, including even countries like Israel, Turkey, South Korea, Malaysia, the members of parliament don't have any kind of special housing and special cars. 
and they don't have any kind of a special light on their cars. Now, why is it that only in India, like some of the African countries, we have uh, special privileges for our uh, parliamentarians? Prime Minister uh, of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, when he was uh, elected as a Prime Minister for the first time uh, 10 years ago, he proclaimed in his very first speech at the parliament, he said, if you are representative of people, you must live with people, you must work among people, and therefore you should not have any kind of a special housing. And he took away all those uh, excessive privileges uh, of the Turkish parliamentarians. What was the result? Within five years, Turkey, which was much worse than India 10 years ago, in terms of its economic performance, in terms of the inflation that existed, in terms of corruption also, dramatically transformed, just by changing the relationship between the rulers and the, and the rule. So, we are basically trying to create incredible India internationally. What we need is a credible India internally. So, our whole obsession with uh, status, power internationally as well as within the country has to be replaced by a system of governance where uh, there is a citizenship equivalence between the rulers and the ruled. By citizenship equivalence, I mean, of course, those who have certain positions of influence are going to have certain powers to introduce policies. But as far as their rights as citizens are concerned, they have to be the same as any other citizens. They cannot have a right to jump the traffic lights, for example. If you have to be a great nation, it has to be a great nation for all Indian citizens, not for just a few leaders who can be at important international negotiating tables. Right. When you say a great nation, which are, in your words, great nations? Is it, is it a country which gets its security right? Is it a country that all men are equal? and not that some are more equal before law? Well, first of all, great nation is a continuum. It's a journey which is through mountain ranges. So you go and climb one mountain range, you are at the peak of the mountain, and then you realize that there is another mountain range in front of you. It's a nation where you are continuously striving for excellence on many different fields. Now, there are a number of countries which have achieved this kind of excellence in certain respects. But uh, since great nation is a continuing concept, we cannot say that any country has reached a final destination because there is no final destination. So what matters is transformation, the process. So basically what I am calling for is an honest and liberal regime. Uh, secondly, we need a country where terrorists don't even dare to uh, attack you. Not just a country where you have a capacity to counter terrorism, but a country where terrorists do not even get a thought of attacking you. So how do you create that kind of a society? There are many societies like that. Right. But that's quite easier said than done, isn't it, Sandeep? How can one implement this? No, I mean, it is done in, it is done in so many countries. There are some countries like Switzerland, Sweden, I would even include Norway and treat the recent, uh, that Brevik incident as an exception. Uh, Finland, Denmark, where terrorists don't attack at all. It's not like the US where they haven't attacked in the last 8 years or 10 years or 5 years or whatever. But, but for decades and decades, terrorists don't even think of attacking these countries. Then you have a second group of countries like US, UK, Spain, Belgium, Germany, many of the West European countries, uh, Canada, where terrorists have attacked but on a limited scale. So what is the difference? As I had explained in my cover essay on uh, terrorism, terrorism takes place as a result of supply and demand, just like uh, it operates like an economic market. But there has to be a very determined policy to address both the supply and the demand side. 
if you only try to dismantle the organizations which are placing the demand side and if you do nothing about the factors which are leading to supply then our efforts will be always inadequate but of course when you talk about great nation to have a society where terrorists don't dare to attack it just 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 one of the indicators it's not uh, it's not the only one Sandeep, let's move on to basic issues like farming, for example. We continue to depend on monsoons throughout the year. You give an example of milk, how, you know, a cow in China, it yields five times more milk than a cow in India. How does the Chinese government ensure that, you know, even the grassroots level is taken care of? Of course, their regime is different. We have a democracy there is, it's completely different. But when it comes down to the basics, how does one country as near to us get it better than india and how can india get better there as well at the grassroots level now the chinese began their reform process in the 70s with agricultural reforms whereas we began our reform process in the 90s with industrial reforms industrial and balance of payment reforms and we haven't really introduced any agricultural reforms at all so chinese have almost 50 year lead over us as far as agricultural reforms are concerned now, what are the kind of things that we need to, to look at? First of all, even though China is a communist regime and India is a democracy, the Chinese farmers have full freedom to sell their produce where they want to sell. Whereas the Indian farmers do not have any freedom at all. They are all shackled by acts like APMC, Agriculture Produce Marketing Committee Act, in most of the states whereby they are not allowed to sell their produce to those who will offer the best price to them. So even in the 20th century, our farmers are not free. Restrictions of market entry, both for marketing their produce as well as restrictions of uh, market input to secure the inputs that they want. There are serious restrictions on transfer of uh, cattle, for example. There are in northern India restrictions on uh, farmers who are dissatisfied with one cooperative to start uh, another cooperative or a parallel cooperative. Basically, the Indian farmers do not have a lot of the freedoms that farmers around the world have. On the other hand, they do not have the protection and support that the farmers around the world get. So, they are really skewed from both sides. Only 38% of cropland in India is uh, irrigated. So 62% of the land, farmers are dependent on uh, on rents. In a state like Maharashtra, which is supposed to be a progressive state, only 18% of the land is irrigated. Our productivity is extremely low. You mentioned milk. In the 90s, both India and China had, a, had an average productivity of somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 uh, liters per year for an average cow or a buffalo. Now, 20 years later, there are only 5% Indian milk producers who have reached a productivity of 5,000-6,000 liters per year. Whereas in China, vast majority of the farmers have moved from 1,500 capacity to 7 to 8,000 or maybe even 10,000 liter productivity. So their productivity has increased 5 to 6 times. So the farmers for the same amount of input are getting 5 to 6 times of returns. Now, this has been done with a, with a very clear policy emphasis on improving the conditions of the farmers. Thirdly, the capacity building of the farmers. I mentioned already that for a country of our size, there are only 20 good agricultural universities. So, where are you going to get uh, the latest knowledge and uh, latest technology for improving your uh, performance, not only on farm, but also for transformation from farm economy to uh, farm, you know, agro-industrial economy. So basically, farming is a completely neglected sector, both in uh, terms of uh, market reforms 
as well as in terms of empowerment and then you also move on to talk about uh, education where you suggest that you know setting up a community radio station could perhaps help to get more people under education how does that help yeah see see almost 5 lakh villages out of 6 lakh 30000 villages don't have middle schools they have primary schools so our primary school enrollment is almost 90% uh, almost 70% of the children on an average drop out before they complete their school education and why do they drop out because vast majority of the indian villages do not simply have schools of the seven standards so there are some children who may be willing to you know walk uh, several kilometers and go to a middle school in samagar uh, village or in a taluka place but it's not always possible for all the families so the question is how are you going to build so many schools how are you going to train so many teachers it's impossible if you try to address these problems in a conventional way it will take another 50 years so we need to see how we can use the technology in a smart way so for example if you decide to build a school in a in a village it costs you about 2 to 3 crore rupees and you are creating something which will benefit 700 to 800 children but if you create a community radio station for educational purpose which is now allowed by the government and it has a range of 25 kilometers they are even thinking of extending that then you would be able to educate uh, a few lakh children and the cost of the community radio station is also about 2 to 3 crores so for the cost of setting up a school if you use technology instead you may be able to provide education to children almost 1000 times similarly the government has made available certain uh, satellites there is a edusat there is a vsat technology where you can provide distance education so there is one company based in chennai which has now made use of this research technology and is uh, providing distance education to schools even in naxalite areas but why only one company in the whole of india so all of this can be done at an extremely fast pace if you are just smart and if you focus on the educational deficit in our rural areas and in even in uh, poorer sections of the cities sanip talking about changes uh, one last question is back in 92 we also how the indian economy liberalized so what is the next big change that you think can get india back on track or am i asking the right question or is it is it just not one change it it'll be probably a piecemeal many changes but what is it what is the next big thing if you get no no we don't need no no it's not about one change and it's not about piecemeal changes i think we need a package and that package has to start with uh, reform in governance processes and practices you cannot have the transformation taking place in economic sector alone and what happened in the 90s was liberalization of balance of payment in large industry if you ask me what is the next thing that is required in our liberalization program is the liberalization of the agricultural sector but that has to go along with empowerment of the farming sector also secondly we have to reform our industry completely if you see where the world economy is going in the next 20-30 years it is going in the direction of research driven fourth industrial revolution particularly in gna and in renewable energy and we have very very little research taking place in our uh, industry so we need to have an economy which is very much driven by research and knowledge not just by supplying cheap labor or cheap software services to multinational companies and underpinning all this of course uh, is the national security is the educational sector and is the value premise on which the country is operating because it is impossible to achieve progress only with technology and uh, economic reform thanks a lot sandeep for your time this was great thanks pleasure talking with you as usual thank you and all you listeners you can get this podcast on forbesindia.com as well as theindicast.com 
subscribe to us on iTunes and also this time the magazine will be out on the stands on the 14th of August. Please pick it up.